I would say that if I were a, a bigger nerd, <laughs> but but since I'm not, um, I will let you say that. And then John will, Yates is Admiral Akbar uh, here. In this <laughs> it's a trap, JD. <laughs> Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm here today with J.D. Koch of Christ Anglican Church in No, Mount, no, but- you have to correct that. It's Christ Church Anglican. Oh, we got, geez. we had some, uh, so we had some, one of our listeners who was very Coming irate. Did we record or is just <laughs> correcting it on the fly? Okay. You just go ahead and you, you make that call. J.D. Koch of Christ Church Anglican in That's Mount right. Pleasant, South Carolina. Matt That's Kennedy right. has his nose to the grindstone, finishing up some writing projects this week. So how are you, J.D.? I'm doing great, Nick. Thanks. Passing on criticisms from listeners, I guess. <laughs> That's right. Well, it was it was loving. It was a loving, loving, uh, oh. loving um, critique. You know, it was... Um, okay. Says, Refiner's fire, fuller that's, soap. You know. That's right. That's right. We thought we'd do something a little bit different this week since Matt's not here, a little less formal. I'm sitting here with my microphone in my lap. Uh, JD and I are old friends. We went to seminary together and have, I hope, been a mutual encouragement to each other in ministry. JD's certainly been one to me. We joined the ACNA around the same time as 2018 turned over to 2019 after years of ministry in the Episcopal Church, some together. My diocese, the Diocese of Christ Our Hope, is explicitly oriented toward church planting, desiring to be a diocese that plants churches that plant churches. Grace Anglican, the parish I serve here in Louisville, is a result in a way of that mission. It is, of course, a slightly more complicated story than that, a story in which J.D. plays an integral role. And since people listening to this podcast, insofar as they're involved in the ACNA, are as likely as not to be involved in a church plant, either as a pastor or a member of the congregation, we thought we would tell a little bit of our story and the story of the planting of Grace Anglican, hoping that it might be an encouragement to some, a cautionary tale to others, (laughs) and most of all, an example of the graciousness of God shown to his church. So, J.D., where do you want to start? At the beginning? When the spirit of the Lord hovered over the deep. <laughs> That's right. Well, I think it's an interesting, um, I was thinking about this. I think a, a place to begin what might be helpful to get a little bit of insight into what we thought we were joining some, what, 20 years ago now. I mean, at least when I, we were back in college, you know, I uh, had not grown up in the Episcopal church, but was quickly grafted into what was then understood to be sort of the the kind of the evangelical resistance or the redoubt um, within the Episcopal Church, which um, was consisted mainly of people who had been involved in the formation of Trinity School for Ministry um, and had been involved in various Faith Alive efforts and were in the process at the time of developing a network which ultimately became the ACNA. There was obviously many iterations before that with AMIA and Pear and Cana and the history of that is well documented, but nevertheless, African connections. That's right. Um, But I think that it's, it's interesting, you know, you can only realize these things in retrospect, but when I was introduced to the Episcopal church or to the, to the, um, what is now the sort of the ACNA uh, remnant within the Episcopal church was right at the right when things were beginning to pick up speed. So this was late 1990s. Uh, this was 1999, uh, right at 2000. And for me personally, 
it was a uh, it was sort of two things came together at the same time. One, a new interest in the history of the church, not just the um, the sort of the age of my personal pastor that I had been involved with um, sort of had been the model of the church within which I had grown up. But actual introduction to the church fathers and the creeds and the history and sort of the the depth and breadth of the church that coincided simultaneously with a renewed um, evangelistic zeal, for lack of a better word, a real desire to to preach and to be involved in helping people come to a saving faith in Jesus. And so these two things came together. Uh, actually shortly before I met Liza. And when I met this group of um, men and women uh, who were part of this resistance force within the Episcopal Church, they met all of those requirements for me very shortly. I met a member meeting, you know, people that are now bishops and professors and teachers and rectors um, in a very short amount of time over between, you know, late 1999, early 2000, and decided then and there that whatever these people were involved in, I would want it to be a part of. And that so was sort of saying what you're saying is that you're like Luke Skywalker and Liza is your Princess Leia. And she introduced you to Admiral Akbar and, you know, the, the whole crew, the leadership of the rebellion. I would say that if I were a, a bigger nerd. <laughs> but, but since I'm not, um, I will let you say that. And then John will, Yates is Admiral Akbar uh, here. In this illustration. <laughs> it's a trap, J.D. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there is a certain amount of that. I was just... Um, you know, shooting womp rats, uh, you know, and, and tattooing and, and looking for some power You're converters. Big enough nerd. That's right. I was just looking to go and get some power converters. But anyway, yeah, so that's but that's, you know, and that's why, again, we've talked about this at length, but the deep ties we have with the ACNA like well predate the actual existence of the ACNA, because we, you know, we, I, when I was 20, I'm 21 years old. I was introduced to people who I thought were really old, who are now my age, you know, who had been laboring, you know, um, hammer and tong to fight for the vestiges of orthodoxy within the Episcopal Church, you know, who had been going to the conventions, who'd been making the speeches, who had been having the tough vestry meetings, who had been trying to to be faithful shepherds uh, as they saw their their denomination slowly drift away from uh, biblical orthodoxy. And to meet these men at a time was very influential in my life and to be inspired by them. I haven't, I haven't lost that. And so now that I find myself in the next generation or as part of the next generation of the ACNA, I'm interested in providing however I can that similar um, inspiration to younger clergy people as they consider joining um, this, this church. And so that's part of the, Part of the background as to why we are even doing this podcast and why we have such a concern is about the future of the ACNA is is primarily because at least at least personally speaking, I am either related to or friends with people that have sacrificed greatly to bring us to the place where we are. I mean, the, the, if you're in an ACNA church and you're listening to this and you don't know um, the names of people like you know, John Stott or J.I. Packer or, you know, Ben Kwashi or John Yates or or these names of people that have either gone ahead of us and, and paved the way or have sacrificed greatly or are currently sacrificing greatly for the sake of faithful biblical orthodox witness in America, well, then send us an email and we can either introduce you to their works or their or their history or something. Because to, to say we are standing, I know it's a cliche, but we are we are standing on the shoulders of, of giants who have gone ahead of us and 
Uh, I mean, I'm just reminded even now of the late, great Peter Moore, who was very influential dean of Trinity. Well, he's a rector of um, Little, was it Little Trinity up in Ontario, I believe, but he's also... Um, was a rector, was a dean of Trinity when it saw it through its sort of expansion from a little sort of storefront school to a um, sort of a much more major academic institution. And then was the um, sort of a canon theologian here down in Charleston who started the Anglican Leadership um, Initiative, which has done an amazing job of sort of bringing people from all over the world to um, get to know each other and to learn and to draw these ties together. And, and people like him, and when I think of the future of the ACNA, I, I always have his face in front of me and other um, sort of luminaries who have gone ahead, who have really inspired and devoted their lives to the sake of the cause. And so it's not with it, it's with a great deal of affection and and passion, um, hard wrought and hard and long wrought passion that we bring to this whole conversation, and which is part of what drives and continues to uphold the, the the movement in the face, like with all the difficulty that comes with church planning, in the face of all the difficulties and obstacles. Um, all I can hear in the midst of that is, well, what did you think you were signing up for, first of all? And second of all, um, did you think it was going to be any easier for you than it has been for them? And yet there they went. And so can you. I mean, that's that's sort of the, the mentality behind it. My own story about the connection to Anglicanism is almost the exact opposite of yours, even though there are definitely connection points along the way. Notably, John Yates himself. I grew up at the Falls Church Episcopal in Falls Church, Virginia. That was my home church. I think it was one of the closest churches to my parents' house when my mom rediscovered her Christian faith after I was born. That's just sort of naturally where she went, although I think she did have some history with Episcopalianism. Her mother had been involved in the Episcopal Church as well. So it was just the church that I knew. I didn't really know anything about any other churches. I didn't know anything about worldwide Anglicanism. It was just the church that I knew. And unbeknownst to me, it was forming me in a way that I didn't even fully understand then. And it wasn't until after college when I discerned my own call to the ordained ministry, which is its own uh, long and sordid tale. But I didn't. I was, I, was, I was actually worshiping at a PCA church at the time because by the time I was graduating from college again, year 2000, like you were just saying, the number of Episcopal churches that were worth attending was already shrinking away to nothing. Um, certainly in Tucson, Arizona, that was the case. And so we found ourselves at a PCA church when I was thinking to myself that God was calling me to the ordained ministry. And so I just called up the clergy that I knew. A couple of them were Presbyterian. I had a friend who was a Presbyterian minister, and I was worshiping at this Presbyterian church. And I happened to know the rector of St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Yuma, Arizona, Tom Phillips was the father of a couple of close friends of mine, and he was the one who spoke sort of the equivalent of a word of prophecy into my life. He said, I know exactly what you should do. You should move here to test the call. And I can't pay you anything. That's but right. that's Come work that, for us for free. That's what that's you right. should do. And so that's what I did. And I, again, it just it continued to be sort of my default church. It wasn't a choice like you made as a choice over against other churches. It was still the church that I was just used to. When I think of church, I thought of the Episcopal church. It wasn't until actually I was in seminary and learning about Anglicanism and how the Book of Common Prayer and the liturgy are so gospel-soaked right. 
that I realized that I had been placed in this church where had I been wise enough at the time to choose, which I of course wasn't, I would have chosen to place myself here when in fact it had been God who had put me here. And so that's of course, when we met, that's when our paths started to cross and then align. But even though our, our paths to that point seemed to be very different, we did end up in the same place at the same yeah. time. Yeah. And I think it was each, each uh, seminary was equally as formative for me because I, I had been working in and around a lot of sort of, we could say evangelical Anglicans or Episcopalians through the uh, ministry of focus, which um, fellowship of Christians, university and schools, which, um, which Peter Moore had started. But even then I was waiting for, as it were, the final call, I was kind of drifting towards ordination just out of um, kind of inertia, but I also had LSAT books in my, my room and was sort of saying, well, I think I could still possibly just be a Christian politician or a Christian lawyer or, or both. And it wasn't until or it was when I was introduced to the actual theological richness of the Book of Common Prayer, in particular through Ashley Knoll's book on Cranmer and his um, the renewing the heart to love is the subtitle. And that that class combined with a sort of exposition of Luther's commentary on Galatians that was taught at Trinity School for Ministry by Paul Zoll. Uh, for me, it was the final shoe. And so I remember calling Liza. We were engaged at that point. And I called her and I said, this is um, we can do this now. Like we can, we're moving down to Central Florida. Like I don't know how long we're going to have to be down there. But Bishop Howell, who at the time I know was very sympathetic to evangelicals in the Episcopal Church. And I said, as soon as we can you know, we'll move down there, we'll work for focus, but, but we let's, let's do this because now we have something to say and something to preach. And through a variety of uh, changes that happened in 2003, you know, Gene Robinson wasn't the only thing that happened in 2003 at the general convention. They, they streamlined the ordination process. So what we thought was going to be a three to five year process down in central Florida actually ended up only being nine months. And so much to the chagrin of the focus uh, <laughs> people who, and I still apologize if you're out there listening, um, it wasn't my intent to only work for focus for nine months down in central Florida, but, but I'll never forget coming back from a uh, commission on ministry sort of um, ex kind of exploration day. And I had a conversation with the canon at the end. And I said, well, I know it's going to be like a three-year process, but I'm really interested in joining up with you guys and, and heading up to Trinity and, and, joining the fight. And he said, well, you know, you don't have to do it now, but there are new um, ways to go about this. So theoretically, you might be able to start in the fall. And so I called Laz on the way home from Orlando back to Vero Beach and said, um, this is going to be sort of a abrupt change, but it looks like we're going to be moving up to Ambridge, God willing, sometime this fall. And that's where we met. I uh, helped you Nick. install your kitchen. You did. It was very, it was very helpful. It was a, very level. it was a, that's right. It was a, it was a three story, six bedroom, 1200 square foot house. <laughs> it cost $58,000. <laughs> my my uh, mortgage was less than my car note uh, at that point. So um, there we go. That's exciting. But we say all that, not, not for kind of, well, it was a little bit nostalgic, but also just to, to situate, perhaps if you're even listening to this, it's like one of those episodes, you know, where it's like the where they stop the linear yeah they stop yeah. the linear progression of the story and they have like a um you know like a trip to spain or something <laughs> you know, it's like but um 54 for them one for us that's right but i think it does help situate when we talk about because we get we've gotten in these discussions and people ask us you know we complain we don't complain but we have a we have a critical eye towards the acna um i think that's safe to say but it's a lovingly critical eye and it's a it's a hopeful critical eye and it's not because of 
a slavish devotion to some sort of idea of this pure sort of church that if only everyone would subscribe to the same things and, and say the right uh, words that somehow we wouldn't have any problems. But it is it is at the same time a an appreciation of just how difficult it has been to get here and to have been part of the you know hope in a future conferences back in 2006 and to be part of the uh, watching Plano come together and seeing the various ways that these that that despite all of the human obstacles that come from as a result of being a sin sinners that we actually have brought together various strains of Protestantism in a way that is very uncomfortable but in same but at the same time like it has not been sort of this this law of third law of thermodynamics, whichever the entropy, maybe that's second, but but we have not dissolved further, but we're actually fighting to to stay close. And that's what what I think is 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 least um, motivating a lot of this discussion about the ACNA is not a a critical spirit, but a loving spirit that wants to to see the 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 hard work and the that the the sacrifice and the dedication of those who've gone before us to be to be further realized as we walk forward in this. And I think you know that was part of the passion that we brought to the Episcopal Church when I became rector. I called Nick to the Episcopal Church uh, for all sorts of reasons, but mainly just because I knew that I needed a, a trusted uh, advisor and um, co belligerent, uh, which was. Um, very important to have. And so we spent the next, what, three years, I guess, uh, sort of beating the same gong the and sort of reading the same script, you know, in every possible way, whether it was from Bible studies to, you know, rectors forums, to sermons, to expositions of what we were involved with and why. And I think that part of the strength of what you get to be a part of their grace is a result of a clarity of vision and purpose around what what actual evangelical Anglicanism is, which which keeps people tethered to the gospel through the liturgy and not to the liturgy for any other you know, reason that they may otherwise have it, you know, I mean, we have former Southern Baptists and former Methodists and longtime Episcopalians and former Catholics. And, you know, everyone has a different appreciation of the quote unquote liturgy and the, the pomp and circumstance or lack thereof of the church. But when it's rightly understood, well, then you understand it to be a vehicle for God's two words to be pointed directly at your heart each and every Sunday, you know, no matter what the sermon is or whether it's too hot or, or you don't love the song you just sang or the reader didn't read properly or whatever the ways that people talk about um, their church experience. If you can appreciate or when it's well, essentially drilled into your head over years of, of what you're actually experiencing in the middle of the liturgy, well then, it it is a vehicle to communicate to you, you know, what is your tagline? God's um, grace for a worn out, worn out world or something. Proclaiming Christ's finished work to a worn out world. Amen. Well, that's exactly what Anglicanism is, and whatever else it is, um, we could talk about. And I actually have very little sort of energy for whatever else it is, <laughs> um, but that is what it fundamentally is. And where that is understood, well, then you can you know, that'll preach and that'll, that'll hold people fast. And um, that's an Anglicanism worth, worth fighting for and worth defending and worth propagating, which is what, which is exactly what you're doing. And it's a church that really aims at the heart of people. Unlike, well, we don't necessarily, we, we're not trying to hit a certain demographic with our worship. Our worship is t- designed to be sort of an 
an atom bomb that will that will take up everybody into its mushroom cloud if you want to yeah. potentially we are fishing you're fishing for men with dynamite with That's dynamite the idea. Right. My, my friend um zach hicks described uh the liturgy of the prayer book as this threefold progression starting with the glory of god and progressing to the gravity of sin and ending with the grandeur of grace. And since he's much more alliterative than I am, he was able <laughs> to do that with almost all G's. But we really do start, you know, with the, the words of acclamation, you know, glory to God. We, we acknowledge the holiness of Almighty God who has created us and who enables us to gather here in worship. And that glory and um, holiness shows us our sin. And so we go straight into the confession. And we, we acknowledge our sinfulness. And then as soon as we acknowledge that, we transition immediately again into the celebration of the grandeur of God's grace for us in Jesus Christ in um, the worship of the table and his body and blood broken and shed for us. And so we, I think one of the great advantages of Anglican worship is that I don't have the pressure to create it anew every Sunday morning. Right. I, I do preach a new sermon every Sunday morning, but I'm basically saying the same thing. I'm just looking for new ways to say it. And as you said, even if I have an off day, you know, God forbid that would ever happen. <laughs> but even if it did happen, the gospel is proclaimed by definition in our worship. That's right. Yeah. And I think that's why, um, you know, part of what took place and precipitated the um, split with the Episcopal Church is is the fact that the the two words of God had been lost, um, even in through you could look at the the various right one and right two. You know, the the, the when the prayer book revision in 1979 came down, um, a lot of the discussion centered around how penitential and sort of dour the right one sort of traditional 1662 ish uh, prayer book liturgy had been because it was so. Um, well, it seemed to be such a such a d depressing down. You know, we yeah. called ourselves um, we were not worthy. Why are we to talking gather about up sin the, so much? That's right. We were not worthy to gather up the sin, the crumbs under Thy table, O Lord. But Thou art the same Lord whose property is always have mercy. You know, we we confessed our sins to Almighty God. You know, which included sins against neighbor, but they were not synonymous with sins against neighbor. You know, these are these are subtle things, but they. You know, as someone said to me over a generation of worshiping with without ever um, considering um, Jesus's admonition to the uh, Syrophoenician woman about the dogs under the table, you know, and sort of putting yourself in that sort of position um, on a weekly basis. Well, then don't be surprised if you have a hard time understanding your own self to be a sinner. I mean, not just that only prayer, but, you know, what I'm, um, you can extrapolate further from that. Well, the but I think the example that, of this, if I might interrupt you for just sure. a second, and I won't use. I won't use this personer's name, not that I think that they are listening, but the perfect example was the yearly passion reading oh, yeah. that we would do at our church, um, that many churches do, that a particular personer came up to you and complained about how she hated having to say, crucify him, crucify him with the rest of the church. Right. That wasn't that depressing. Couldn't we, couldn't we do something else? And this is so emblematic of the problem with the Episcopal church, even though, I mean, I think we would like to say we were trying to be a good Episcopal church yeah. in writ large, the church as a right. whole writ large was depriving people of the ability to put themselves in that temple courtyard on Friday afternoon able to say, yes, I right. would have been one of those voices That's calling right. out for his crucifixion. And when That's you take right. that away, 
then you take the gospel away too. That's right. Well, that's exactly, and that's exactly why one of the first of the three Jerusalem Declaration kind of bullet points is the uniqueness of Christ. Because it's not that other religions don't have sort of general revelation and, um, you know, quote unquote, good people involved in them or something like this. You know, we can work together with interfaith people to pick up trash on a highway or something and assume that by God's common grace, we're not going to devolve into, you know, hacking each other to pieces or something. And we can be grateful for that. But there's only one religion, there's only one claim that God has has justified the ungodly by his own death of his own son. Like this is the, the, the this is a, what do we say now that it's a, um, a true, a, a worthy saying and de- deserving of, I forget the new All translation. Men received. That, yeah, but Christ the, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Yes. And we, I, I was, I get caught up on because the new translation we use is somewhat different. This is a worthy saying and deserving of full acceptance, I think oh, is yeah, what we say. Right. Um, I'm, so still, I'm still, I'm still I'm, too steeped in the 79. I am too. I am too. But, um, but the point is that that's part of the statement of the ACNA is that the uniqueness of Christ is not a dogmatic. I mean, well, it is a dogmatic statement, but it's not fundamentally the purpose of it to be simply a truism that you have to check off. It's that because only Christ Jesus died for sinners. Like only the the argument, the scandal of the cross is that, yes, it was for you, yet he took it for you. And no other religion, no other claimants to the throne make that audacious claim because they're not the gospel. And so part of what is lost in, for the supposed sort of missional aspect of, of playing down the reality of sin is precisely what you said, Nick, is that when we, when we, like Luther was famous for this, if you saying for this, if you, if you don't know, if you don't know the depth of your sin, you can't appreciate the heights of, of the gospel. I mean, this is just a straightforward, clear depiction of, of the depth of your need will be proportionate to the height of your, of, of your savior. Right. And so this is why in the Jerusalem declaration, the first of the three, like I said before, bullet points is the uniqueness of Christ. Uh, the second, the authority of scripture. And then by extension, the, the purpose and design for human sexuality within the confines of marriage. I mean, this is, these are all parts of a whole because we could even work backwards from that. The fact that we look around us and see us, as Isaiah says, as people with unclean lips amongst, you know, people of unclean um, hands, you know, that we are all complicit in the sinfulness of the world, which is manifest um, not exclusively, but very graphically in the breakdown of the relationship between men and women. Then we work backwards into the depiction and diagnosis that the Bible alone gives from God himself about both our diagnosis and our cure. And finally, that cure is solidified and, and secure in Christ alone. And that's, those are the reasons why we broke, as it were, or or stayed, um, however you want to say it. And, you know, whatever else we argue about in the ACNA and whatever else sort of disagreements or kind of interest people have are somewhat interesting to me, but only insofar as they um, are not clouding over these three great truths, which were the reasons that we we actually decided to walk apart. And, and so that's part of the concern, too, as we look ahead and some of the, what we're doing here is that I don't mind all of the various vigorous discussion and fellowship that's going on about the nature of our church and Anglican identity and all these things. But when they end up threatening sort of these crucial and central aspects of the whole reason we're here, well, then that begins to concern me. And that's when we begin to talk about them as maybe um, needing to be either put back into their secondary or tertiary um, sort of levels, or maybe we're, we shouldn't be talking about them at all. Um, and that's kind of what, you know, well, we do that on a weekly basis. So, <laughs> And that's ultimately what we ended up in retrospect discovering 
happened here in Louisville. We thought we were engaged in the renovation of an Episcopal church, and it turned out that we didn't realize what we were actually doing was planting a new church within it that ultimately several years later has blossomed into an actual new church that (laughs) meets in a different building at a different time and is a totally different thing. But this specific thing that is non-negotiable ultimately could not coexist with a, a shell that rejected it. Yes. So we find ourselves in an elementary school cafeteria rather than in a beautiful sanctuary. And we find ourselves with all of our things, our material possessions in a trailer that we unload and load every Sunday morning, um, which is, you know, there are struggles involved, but the, the blessing of being able to hang our hats on something um, that is so centered on and soaked in the gospel is, is worth any number of Amen. having to set up chairs Amen. Well, we had a similar version of that too. I mean, it's funny. We, when I came down here to South Carolina, they, they are currently still under this lawsuit and they have been for the past 10 years. And literally the second week I was here, we had a um, two week virtual office experiment to see what we could do. You know, this is before COVID. So what, what, how could we possibly have a virtual office? And, you know, if we didn't have our buildings or anymore, and that was quite sobering. Um, but yeah. at the same time, you know, it wasn't as sobering to me as perhaps it would have been for someone else, because I just saw this as a logical continuation, the logical step of the path that I had been on since college, because all of these people involved in this uh, diocese in particular have counted this cost. I mean, you have rectors who are in danger of losing their rectories, you know, their, their pensions. You have um, parishioners with you know, generations of their family being buried in the, in the courtyard that they're all just going to walk away from. And, Mm -hmm. and they're not going to walk away. Um, Not all of them are going to walk away, but after 10 years, you know, most, if not all have really had to count the costs. Like, is it worth it? And what would we do? And, and I was able to uh, come down and I'm grateful just in the Lord's providence. Like I said before, one of the reasons he brought us down here was to spend the last two years uh, with Peter Moore, um, who is a dear friend and mentor and hero of mine. And that was a great joy to spend time with him uh, before he died, but also to go around to the diocese. And essentially, you know, people would try to say, well, do you know what you're getting into? Like, do you think it's worth it? Like, are you ready for this? Like, I mean, are we sure that we could lose these buildings? And I was able to say without, without even missing a beat, of course it's worth it. Like, yes, this is exactly the witness uh, that will will actually um, have eternal consequences for your family and your future generations of of Christians, maybe Anglicans, you know, let's hope Anglicans, but fundamentally it's for future generations of Christians who say, remember when granddad um, actually believed God was real and spoke truth through the Bible um, over against the prevailing winds of culture to the extent that he had to um, get another job because he lost his his rectory or whatever. But that's the type witness and that's the type courage that, in, frankly, is inspiring and and life changing and and can withstand the annoyance of taking up and putting down chairs. You know, I mean, I, I thought and I was past that. that. Yeah, and we it, should say that we're, we're, we are at least I, I assume that I speak for you when I say that we're hesitant to cast ourselves in some sort of heroic role. It's much more that we do these things because we find ourselves doing them. It just seems to make all the sense in the world 
that you would be willing to set up chairs and plug in the speakers and do all the stuff that's involved in having worship in an elementary school, not because, you know, you're some hero, but that. Well, I don't have to do that. I'm not volunteering that. (laughs) Others have inspired you, but not, but again, they wouldn't call themselves heroes either. They're simply in love with Jesus Christ and wanting to share his good news with the world. And if sharing his good news with the world means, setting up a tent in a field, that's what they'll do. If it means standing by somebody's hospital bed, that's what they'll do. Not because of what it means, but just because that's what the Lord has put in front of them. And that's what makes sense to um, make his promise come true, that his word will not return to him empty, but will in fact accomplish the purposes for which he sent it. We're just like, we're just sort of along for the ride as his word does what it has promised to do. That's exactly right. And, and, you know, it took, these were, these were um, hard, I wouldn't say hard won, but these were hard lessons to learn. I'm always reminded when Paul talks about having learned to be content in every season, you know, and I was, I was struck by that the other day. I've learned to be content in, in plenty and want and, you know, in health and sickness. And he didn't just say, you know, deal with it one way or the other, but he was actually confessing to a certain degree that there was a, there was a, well, a learning, a, a discipleship process. And I can, I resemble that remark in my <laughs> life because I definitely went overseas um, in part for search with the PhD or the doctorate to, um, to sort of answer some intellectual uh, questions in my life, but also in the hopes that perhaps the history or like the church of England and all of its pomp and circumstance and kind of its finery would, would be the ballast for my, for my hope and my faith, you know, and, and again, there's nothing against the church of England, but let's just say the institutions, no matter how beautiful or historic cannot in and of themselves hold, hold you fast. It just can't. And I learned that in over a couple of years, you know, we work over there for almost six years and, and wasn't entirely disillusioned by my experience, but certainly realized that it wasn't going to be able to be upheld simply because of the history and the liturgy and kind of the, the accents. Right. But at the same time, what I was, what I was introduced to, which has remained to this day, an incredibly sobering and challenging reality was being experienced to the world, the breadth of worldwide Anglicanism, which was, um, you know, uh, illustrated at least in Vienna by uh, having the UN bring people from all over the world, uh, many of whom are Anglican Christians to our church. And so you had people that had grown up in, in dramatically different uh, socioeconomic places, you know, much more complicated uh, religious environments. You know, I'm thinking of um, and now subsequently having met um, a dear friend, Trinity graduate, Bishop Campicha you know, who grew up in Nairobi and was sent to northern Kenya as a bishop there who's, you know, dealing with sectarian violence and strife and religious upheaval all the time. And yet watching the Lord hold them fast, despite um, having, you know, nothing in the, in the magnitude of, of even what our little church in Vienna had with respect to um, finery and pomp and circumstance and relative peace and security for that matter. Mm-hmm. Well, that was the experience, I think, that began to really um, take root and has now uh, been uh, bearing fruit in my life, which is that, you know, not that you want to compare and say, well, it could be worse, but you do realize that brothers and sisters in Christ who for no choice of their own, other than God's providential hand have been situated in much more difficult places and yet, or not, and yet, and have the same faith, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and are worshiping in um, spirit and truth all around the world and in, are in communion with us and in solidarity with us for our defense and witness to the gospel. Well, that that is worth 
you know, all of the um, coffee hour sherries um, at Trinity Copley Square in Boston that you could ever give me, you know, or wherever the case may be. I mean, that's that has now become, you know, the treasure in the field worth selling everything else for and, and, and just camping about. And I think that's where fundamentally when it comes down to the, the witness of the ACNA is that we are a small um, in the U.S., of course, you know, having been new, having been relatively new, but we do represent and are carrying with us the sort of the flags and the the hopes and convictions of, of tens upon tens of millions of Anglicans all around the world who have sacrificed much more than losing their pension or losing their um, rectory, perhaps, or maybe getting some public opprobrium because they're not on the quote unquote right side of history on a couple of questions. And those are the people that continue to inspire and encourage me much more so than any fear of um, of being, you know, like we said, on, in sort of the wrong um, social club or the wrong zip code in a particular city with respect to your your church. And so I think, you know, that's what I think the hope of the Anglicanism going forward is that as we continue to just build these global relationships, uh, which, um, again, like Anglican Leadership Initiative, Peter Moore helped um, start so wonderfully and continue to tie these these bonds of affection tighter across across these wildly divergent socio sociological and, and national um, boundaries then we're going to continue to see the growth of um, Anglicanism as a vehicle for the gospel, both here and abroad. And that's, that's a really exciting prospect. We are thankful to our leadership for their continued, you know, support and various pastoral statements on sexual identity, et cetera. We, we keep are, them coming. Keep, keep them coming. coming. Yeah. <laughs> keep them. I've got <laughs> a list of things. If you want to keep, keep <laughs> a list of, of wolves howling that I can hear that I would love for you to be you to address. So feel free to, to private message us. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you want to say anything sort of as a final word, JD? We are, we are Anglicans. We're trying to be faithful to the word. What good word can you offer to Anglicans who are trying to figure out what, what it means to worship in an Anglican church. Maybe they're in a school. I've, there's a church in our diocese, I think that meets in a botanical garden. Like that's cool. These are not traditional, comfortable settings, but, but what can we say to these Anglicans who are really getting a ton of new churches off the ground headed in the right direction? Yeah. I think my one encouragement would be to, to know that the, to know the tradition um, not simply the liturgical tradition, but the tradition of pastors, preachers, and and theologians that have gone before um, and be conversant with the struggles that they faced and take heart that that almost without exception, nothing that we are facing now has not been faced in a in some capacity in the past. And we can um, take great comfort in the wisdom of the, of the ages um, as we apply it, you know, as we take scripture tradition and then take our reason and apply it to our current circumstances. And, and really, I think, uh, continue to watch that rootedness hold people fast to the Anglican tradition, not for the sake of tradition, but for the sake of the gospel. Because we'll see that, that, you know, Ridley and Latimer, like they didn't die for nothing, you know, I mean, Granmer just on down the line. I and mean, there's a, there's a, 
there's a long history of people who have um, who have sacrificed greatly uh, because they found Jesus in the midst of this, you know, otherwise sinful, broken institution we call the church. Um, but it remains the bride of Christ by faith in him alone. And we will continue to proclaim that and watch um, the harvest come in um, as the Lord brings it. And so that's that's my encouragement, my two cents. It's worth saying, I think, again, as you use the phrase scripture, tradition, and reason, that the finding of Jesus Christ is the proof that scripture of those three is the foundation of the other two, that those are not somehow equal um, working in concert with one another. Scripture is the thing (laughs) upon which we found everything else, reason and tradition, I think, as you have said, uh, provide sort of the guide rails to our interpretation of scripture, which is the final word on everything. I did want to say also, um, you mentioned Ashley Knoll's book before. I happen to know the precise title. If any listeners want to look it up, it's called Cranmer's Doctrine of Repentance, colon, Renewing the Power to Love, which is a book that we definitely do recommend. That's right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, We so appreciate your time. If you want to keep the conversation going with us, you can be in touch. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes. You can send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com, or you can join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. We look forward to having Matt back with us next week. Thanks to J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon. And by the grace of God, we'll be back next week. Until then, we'll be standing firm. 